I think one of the big overarching concerns or, or things we're keeping an eye on is the longer COVID lingers in the public consciousness as, as there are different waves and variants and, and it's not going away because we're not reaching sort of that herd immunity via vaccine, the more permanent we believe behavior shifts will be. Um, the longer you know people get comfortable with a hybrid or remote work plan, the more likely it is to be permanent afterwards if they've been doing it for two or three years, then as opposed to like, this was a six to nine month blip. Welcome to the A-Fire podcast. Now streaming on Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. We always tend to think more about real estate at the local level, but in this world, as interconnected as much as it is, it's really hard to believe that what happens in one country doesn't affect a market in the other. And we are in an environment where we're seeing some things that will help us see that even more clearly, COVID responses, uh, what happens with Brexit, where things go. Now, Christopher Moyo, the Vice President of Data and Research for Madison International Realty, has done some really interesting work on this. Uh, and he published in our latest issue of the Summit Journal, the summer issue with an article called London Calling. Um, now, by looking at the dynamics of London's office market, uh, pa- you know, post-Brexit and through the experience we're all having still of COVID, there are some intriguing conclusions to be had and valuable insights. So thank you, Chris, for joining me on the AFIRE podcast. Thank you for having me, Gunnar. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, why don't we start with Brexit? Uh, you know, what, what happened? I, I think what, the agreement was back in uh, 2016 or something like that. What, what happened to the office market in London post-Brexit? Yeah, so there was the initial vote in 2016 for the UK to leave the EU, and there was an immediate sort of capital markets response in the London office market where deal volume and in particular cross-border deal volume really eroded and dried up. And we saw what had been a steady growth trend of capital flowing into London reverse suddenly. And and deal volume has been contracting ever since, only recently exacerbated by the pandemic. Uh, London is a market that has a very high proportion of cross-border and international deal flow. And so this sort of geopolitical uncertainty that they created with the Brexit vote really spilled into their their office market and their capital markets and had some interesting ramifications on pricing as well. So if you were going to enter a global pandemic, you might not choose to withdraw from an international treaty? Yeah, I don't know that I would make the choice to uh, further complicate my matters by having to negotiate international trade agreements while also trying to stamp out a, a pandemic. Well, I mean, given that and given the, the difficulty of that, given what happened right after and and, and for the, the several quarters uh, after the agreement, um, what has happened since? So deal volume has remained depressed and it, it hasn't bounced back. Now, part of that, again, isn't due to the pandemic and, and the inability of international capital to get into the UK, especially until very recently, I, just last week, I believe, or, or this week, US travelers are allowed to enter the UK without quarantining again. So maybe that sort of helps stem that tide. But as deal volume eroded, we really saw cap rate spreads widen out in London. And that makes sense, you know, liquidity dried up in the market, so pricing responded to that. But what was interesting is cap rate spreads for London office uh, office deals have widened beyond their European peers. And it's not something you expect to see in such a global capital destination that previously and historically trades in line with its peers are tighter. 
given yeah. the preference investors have shown for it historically. So if I understand this right, London is cheaper than Europe right now. We believe that, yes. Well, that, that's, that's certainly a difference from what we saw in the past. Um, now, as that is occurring, and, and obviously we're still in the thick of COVID, we're still, you know, it's hard to predict anything. And COVID is having quite a, a dampening effect on office, uh, certainly at this point, as there is quite a bit of uncertainty. But um, how do you think um, this will evolve. I mean, L London's done a little bit better over the last few months in terms of vaccines and, and, and containment and everything else. I mean, how are there any signs at this point in terms of how this is going to, to play out? So we can make some sort of inferences based on the current data. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, the UK has lifted a bunch of, if not all, their pandemic-related economic restrictions. Uh, this, despite the sort of rising cases over the last month or so of the Delta variant. But what was interesting, and you mentioned vaccinations, is UK has a very high vaccination rate, I believe. Almost 70% of the population, if not more, has at least one dose. And they're you know close to 60%, if not more, fully vaccinated of their entire population. So you know those numbers get higher when you look at the adults who are eligible, um, as children are not really eligible yet across the board. So what, what was interesting was during this recent Delta wave, we saw cases really spike, but hospitalizations and deaths did not. And I think that sort of gave the, the local government the ammo to, or, or the backdrop to sort of say, hey, look, cases are up, but our health system can handle this. And so we don't need to shut back down. I think we're seeing something similar across the US right now. We're seeing cases rise and, and not much of a response. I know the Fed Chair Powell just noted in his comments yesterday that they've observed a disconnect between cases and economic activity that has gotten, you know, that relationship has gotten weaker with each subsequent wave of COVID. It's just sort of people are reverting to going about their business. Now, that said, there are long-term ramifications of the pandemic vis-a-vis -vis hybrid and remote work that do cloud the outlook for office fundamentals. Okay, how so? Yeah, I mean, the pandemic really proved that a lot of businesses can operate within a reasonable productivity band from home, at least part of the time, if not full time. So, and we've seen in surveys, you know, survey data, a lot of business leaders have commented, we're looking to reduce our footprint. Um, now that action is not being taken yet. It's, it's a lot more talk than action at this point. And I think that's because they're riding out the current situation and their current leases before they get to a decision point. And no one needs to rush that decision point because it's, you know, it's a, it's a expensive, undertaking if you're going to expand your space or renew your space. So you want to be sure about your plans and, and your operations before you do so. But it does seem like the number of days employees are in the office per week will decline permanently in the wake of COVID. Um, some firms will go to full or priority remote. Uh, we've seen Twitter has announced that they're, you know, moving towards a remote first future. Uh, now they're maintaining their office presence in New York and San Francisco, but you know, it does seem employees are, are having that sort of opportunity to go remote if they want. And I think what's very interesting is here in the U.S., we're seeing, you know, Apple, which sort of said we're office first. We want people to come back in September. Their employees are really pushing back hard on that. And there's a lot of leverage on the employee side right now, given the, the tightness in the labor market. So, you know, employers may not ultimately have the say if they want to attract and retain talent remote or hybrid working situations could be a benefit that they have to offer in order to attract that talent. You know, it, it does seem to me that every time uh, a business leader uh, or, or a group for a company 
says that they're going to require it or, you know, this is when it's going to happen, that there does seem to be that backlash. And there is an incredible, you know, people are voting with their feet, especially valuable, educated young people uh, that maybe have other options out there. It, it's every time someone asserts with authority that this is what's going to happen, um, it's undermined. <laughs> it's something. Yeah, the, the only real the only real uh, outlier from that I've seen has been in the, the with the banks in New York, yeah. uh, Goldman yeah. Sachs said, you know, you're all going to come in on this Friday and that they were all back in the office pretty much um, if they were vaccinated. So that that was really the only outlier of we're going back to the office on this date and time and, and we'll be back. Um, but even within the financial sector of, of New York City, we're seeing a huge dichotomy between, you know, Goldman and JP Morgan are going to go back into the office and City and UBS are saying we're going to be hybrid. And mm -hmm. it'll be interesting to see how that affects their their talent recruitment and retention, yep. and also yep. if uh, their performances diverge down the road because of productivity differences. No, it, it, it should be very interesting. And, and I, it, it's going to be impossible to know until we've played this out probably for a while. But it does seem to me that no matter what we're looking at, you know, what level of work from home or what level of, it does seem that we're certainly not going to see an increase in office space demand, you know, aggregate demand. Um, how does one invest in this marketplace? Because I, I'm sure there's going to be some fantastic deals. Certainly, if London's so cheap, I'm I'm really intrigued. But it, how should one approach that kind of investing in, in in this where we have an X factor, we have an in, you know kind of an unknown at this point? Sure. So I think you have to take a, a dual approach, both top down and bottom up. So top down. I think you need to find markets where there aren't, isn't a lot of supply coming online. The last thing you want to add to sort of a reduced demand outlook is an overhang of supply. Uh, we believe at Madison that's kind of an issue with uh, a lot of the top U.S. markets is that we saw a lot of construction begin prior to the pandemic. And, you know, here in New York City, we have Hudson Yards delivering. There's been a construction boom in Austin, Texas. San Francisco and Seattle have pretty robust supply pipelines. And so, and, and we were concerned about these projects even before there was a pandemic in terms of absorption, how fast that would be, et cetera. So yeah, I agree. Exactly. And, and I think this has made that worry even more acute because you really worry about your ability to lease up if you have any vacancy in your building or, or tenant rollover. I think the other thing from a top-down approach you look at, and this gets into the paper a little bit, is where's relative pricing difference? Uh, you know, we mentioned London cap rate spreads are are at almost record levels of wides to, to gilts. And that at least gives you some cushion on the pricing side if, to yeah. absorb some potential risk uh, in, our, in our view. So that's, that's another way to look at it from top down. From bottom up, I think when you look at specific assets, I do think the more commodity class B office space is going to struggle. It's, there's a lot of it. And, and I do believe that when we get to the point of decision times for a lot of these business leaders, they're going to maintain sort of the trophy HQ for, for meetings and high level sort of uh, gatherings of individuals and sort of that rank and file or, or back office function can be from home. And another way to sort of inoculate yourself best you can from that is to have longer vaults in any asset you're looking at. That at least buys you some time before you get to that leasing treadmill where we'll have a little better visibility as to what the demand profile really is. Absolutely, and I think I think one of those unknowns still is um, because this changes over time anyway. But everything's been accelerated with a two-year kind of hiatus. What is trophy? 
um, you know, what are the what are the attributes of a trophy asset in a post-COVID world? They might be just the same, but I I'm skeptical. I I, I do think that it's going to be tough. To, I mean, obviously, a B-class office that was never so great to begin with, or whatever else, or a C-class worse yet, I think it's going to be a tougher sell, except for a very specific kind of uh, tenant. But I, I I do wonder about A. I I want us to not to be too. Um, to do to, to be too comfortable uh with oh this is the best trophy asset in midtown and you know it's a, a no-brainer everyone's going to want to have this and i'm like well they might they might but it might be different and it might be some capital that has to go in some capex in order to bring it to the new i mean we've talked about space between people and ventilation and everything else but i think there are other things that are lurking that we're, we haven't paid enough attention to yet I completely agree. And we've seen in the multifamily side that there has been a shift in preference towards larger units post pandemic. There, those are seeing you know larger units and more bedrooms are seeing stronger rent growth than, than their smaller counterparts. And I think that's because people are trying to get space to accommodate working from home and being home more of the week. And I think office will see something similar where the amenities need to change a little bit. You probably will have a less sort of trade desk or cubicle space and more meeting space. Anecdotally, we've heard that, you know, if you can get it, outdoor space is a huge amenity where people like to just, you know, go outside if they can. As we know uh, about COVID, you know, being outside is a lot safer from a transmission perspective than being inside. So outdoor space will probably become a more desired amenity. And that's that's pretty rare in a class A office building unless you sort of have one of the top floors or, or some sort of special balcony uh, off your space. Well, and then there's the other aspect of this that, that has been growing. It was kind of something off to the side for many years, uh, uh, maybe more popular in Europe than here, but this whole idea of, of the health of the space, um, the quality of the air, the quality of the, you know, what kind of off-gassing are you dealing with? Is this a healthy space for people to be in? And, and surprise, surprise, <laughs> we're all very concerned about that. And it's more of a mainstream issue now than it was before. So I think we're gonna have to pay some close attention to that as we go go into the new era. But again, all of this costs money. And I think that's part of the concern is, as you're investing. And I, I think your point, you know, really paying close attention to the basis um, is warranted you know, as we do. Definitely. And I, I do I do believe you're right. Like TI, tenant improvement costs, are probably going to rise uh, in the immediate aftermath of, aftermath of COVID to get space up to the spec that tenants will feel comfortable leasing it. And, and utilizing it uh, for however they envision their workflow uh, in the sort of post-COVID environment when we get to that. Um, I think, and you sort of mentioned quality, air quality and things of that nature, like ESG and sort of uh, environmental standards have really risen to the forefront, even more so than they were prior to the pandemic, part and parcel with that. And so that's sort of ESG investing and making sure your building is, is best for both the environment and the people within it is becoming more and more critical. And I encourage anyone who's skeptical that this might happen, just go into a class A office building from 1979, see how you feel. Um, you're not gonna feel very class A. Um, and, and I think there's been an acceleration of that process, um, certainly the same place. So we have these kind of natural experiments going on. We've got different countries and different regions having uh, different uh, experiences of COVID and, and, and different governments doing better job, worse job, you know, you know, we'll find out at the end, it's very hard to judge at this point, uh, in terms of getting, uh, you know, policy and in terms of, uh, uh, vaccines, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what do you think we might learn 
when we get past this? What are some of the things that when, when you think as a researcher and as someone who, who thinks this way, what should we be looking for in the data in the next couple of years uh, to, to come out of this? So I'll be very interested, and I don't know how available these data sets will become to the broader public, but I know a lot of firms have installed sort of systems that monitor the way their space is being utilized by employees. So they can sort of know number of days in the office, what conference rooms or areas of their office are being used. And I'll be very interested to see if there's a shift either to more isolated space within offices as we sort of have a, a fear of not a fear, but you know, a, a, an over, a persistent overhang worry of transmission. We're more cognizant now of the fact that our breath and other people's breath intermingle and we're transmitting things. You know, it's not something we ever thought about prior to the pandemic, and now it's at the forefront of everyone's mind. So I'll be interested to see, with even within a space, how is that space being utilized differently than it was prior to the pandemic? I think the other thing we're going to see is there will be cultural differences even within the US, which is you know different than Europe, about how frequently people are in or go to the office. You know, uh, we look at a data set that sort of measures key card swipes at offices, and we've seen in sort of the Sunbelt states, much higher utilization of commercial space than we've seen in the coastal states. And part of that was earlier because the coastal states had more restrictions on you know capacity and and it, it was a little more of a cultural, you know, stay out of the city that they, they got hit harder early on. But now we're sort of at a level where the restrictions are pretty equal across the U.S. And we're still seeing that divide with the Sunbelt utili- utilizing their offices and their commercial space more than we're seeing in the coastal states. That's interesting. I wonder what that is. I mean, there's a couple attributes. One, there's no mass transit. People are driving. And they feel safer. And I think also in the in the Sunbelt states, the value of meat locker level air conditioning is much higher than it might be elsewhere, um, where it's like I get to go and cool off <laughs> for a day. <laughs> I, I just wonder. I wonder what you know all the different drivers. I think that's that. a big part of it. And you know, we also did see sort of a an exodus of a, of a sense from the coastal cities uh, earlier in the pandemic. We're starting to see some reversion of that in recent months in the apartment data, but. I think that also contributed. And then also there's just cultural differences between the Sunbelt states and the coastal states about the relative risk levels that were perceived during COVID. And so uh, there was a little more willingness for group together activities in the Sunbelt states than there were in the coastal metros. Well, it'll see how it'll be interesting to see how that continues to evolve and uh, what the, the kind of after COVID kind of uh, what are the echoes? What are the things that are going to last that are different? But certainly as divided as the country has been recently on a regional and a political level, it just seems like this has only increased. And, and we may have to become more cognizant of, just as we are when we invest in, say, France versus the UK, there are things that are done differently. The real estate markets do behave differently um, in those different countries. And, and I think, I, I wonder how much more different will it be in the United States between some of the regions um, in terms of how we do it? Yeah, and I think that's a great point. You know, it's something when you're in Europe and it's a different country, it it comes to the forefront of your mind more easily that there will be cultural differences. And that that goes all the way down to the way leases are structured in Europe. Now, I don't think we're going to see something like that in the U.S. where there's dramatic differences in structuring, but there will definitely be cultural differences that you need to be aware of as you're making, you know, going through your investment process and and your underwriting assumptions. So what are you most concerned about looking forward um, in terms of things that could go wonky or things that, that you, you're paying attention to from a risk perspective? So, I mean, first and foremost is the trajectory of the Delta variant. You know, we're still on the upswing here in the U.S. Uh, thankfully, it looks like the U.K. is 
past an inflection point and cases are on a downslope there. So that's in the U.S. definitely keeping an eye on that. Um, right now, it's a little more acute in the rural area, so it doesn't affect the office assets we're looking at as much as uh, it otherwise would, but definitely need to keep an eye on that. What are you most optimistic about? The efficacy of the vaccines and the science. I mean, it's a miracle, to be frank, that within a, you know pretty much a year, we had a vaccine that was over 90% uh, effective against the original COVID strain and, and showing high efficacy against variants as well. I, I'm very hopeful in mRNA technology long-term um, being applied to other diseases, you know, influenza. I know Moderna has looked at applications in cancer. So I'm very optimistic on the science side that, you know, we, we can solve this from a scientific perspective. The issue is the sort of cultural and political buy-in within all countries. I mean, we're seeing it not just in the U.S., but in Europe as well, there is vaccine hesitancy. There's distrust of institutions, be them pharmaceutical or, or government. And so, you know, that distrust of institution is very concerning in sort of getting us past this this pandemic. Agreed. Well, um, it, it's going to be interesting at, at the very least. It, <laughs> what's going to happen over the next six months to a year? Um, I encourage everyone who has not yet read it, but to read London Calling in the summer issue of, of A Fire Summit, he includes quite a bit of. Chris gives us more charts, I think, per square inch than than any contributor to the Summit magazine. He's just fantastic. So I would encourage you to dive in and memorize uh, all the work that he's put together on this. Um, and if you have not subscribed to the A Fire podcast, what's wrong? You need to, please uh, come on board. Uh, you can subscribe through any of those uh, services that are out there, whether it's Apple or Stitcher or uh, you know any of them. Um, and if you find one that doesn't allow you to subscribe, uh, let me know and I'll make sure that uh, A Fire Podcast is available through that as well. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you. And uh, for those of you uh, that are listening to this, uh, uh, perhaps I hope from a little bit of a summer break, uh, you know, good to see you and I look forward to seeing you in September. So thank you, Chris, for joining me on the A Fire Podcast. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. You've been listening to the A Fire Podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. A Fire is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice through this podcast. No content included here is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information, including the A Fire Podcast, may have been obtained from third party sources considered to be reliable. A Fire is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third party information. The opinions expressed in the A Fire Podcast are those of its respective contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of A Fire. To learn more about the A Fire Podcast, including underwriting and guest opportunities, visit afire.org slash podcast.